Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, today's discussion is on the Palestinian perspective. So just to give you guys a brief background, a few days ago I had uh, hosted a podcast with Jaydi Prabhu on the Israel-Palestine conflict and obviously uh, the essence of that podcast was pretty much the Israeli perspective. But as they always say, every issue is complex and it has multiple sides. So if I would have not done a podcast on the Palestinian perspective, I think in my view, I would have committed a, a grave disservice to the issue. And anybody who listens to this podcast knows that I have a habit of presenting multiple sides and multiple angles. So, so to, to enlighten us about the Palestinian perspective, we have Shadi Hamid with us. Shadi, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, Shadi, before we uh, get into the nitty gritties of the discussion, I'll request you to tell everybody a bit about yourself, please. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Shadi Hamid. I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. Um, I'm also a contributing writer uh, for The Atlantic. Um, I, I focus um, mostly on the intersection of Islam and politics, but also Middle East issues uh, more broadly. Uh, it's actually interesting that I... Um, I used to try to avoid to the extent possible commenting on Israel-Palestine just because I felt like nothing good could really come out of it. And you had two irreconcilable positions. And it was very rare to come out of it thinking that a conversation was productive. But I think in this most recent Gaza conflict, I felt, I felt um, bothered enough and um, and critical enough of what Israel was doing that I felt that I had to kind of say my part and be out there in the public debate to the best of my ability. Um, and I think I am more hopeful about where the conversation can go, and we'll probably talk about that. Um, so uh, that's sort of where I'm coming from on that. Um, and then other things about me, I guess uh, one of the reasons uh, you know me, Kushal, is that um, you had heard me on uh, the Sam Harris podcast and also with uh, Gad Saad. And I was talking then about my book, um, which is which is called Islamic Exceptionalism, where I talked about how, as the title suggests, uh, my argument about how Islam is fundamentally different than other religions, which was controversial. And in that sense, you know, I'm not a stranger to getting into uh, controversial debates. And also, I think, in perhaps an unpredictable way, because sometimes people think that I'm, I'm more on the right. Sometimes people think I'm more on the left. But I think it's good to have people a little bit confused. Yeah, I you know, to that, I would say, as long as you're pissing everyone off, I think these days you're doing the right job. <laughs> <laughs> Especially on social media, if a sufficient bunch of people on both sides of the aisle are mad at you, that means you're going uh, most probably on the basis of first principles. And because if you go on the basis of first principles, it's impossible to please one side all the time. Because uh, as, at least in my own experience in my life, what I've seen is when you tend to follow the evidence and follow first principles, you sometimes end up on the side of the left. And sometimes uh, in India, I don't believe India has a right wing. So I always use the word in India. I say the non-left, the people who are not with the left. So so in, in, in my experience, you know, at least I've been uh, getting 
brickbats from both sides so so i can totally relate to this but chadi well, you know we're going to be titling i'm going to be calling this podcast the palestinian perspective so let me start with this uh because people can accuse me of saying that that it's a very homogenizing way of even using a term like this now you're the perfect person to talk to about this about is because as you mentioned you wrote the book islamic exceptionalism and in that book you actually do do go in detail about various perspectives within the islamic world i mean you talk about the muslim brotherhood how they function and you do talk about various other you know offshoots or branches within that group too so if i was to ask you to begin with what is the palestinian perspective how would one go about it because certainly the hamas perspective or a pla perspective can't be the only palestinian perspective right there could be multiple perspective let's say you know what would be the perspective of the average palestinian so if somebody was to ask you to dissect this to begin with how would you go about it yeah sure Uh, so well first of all i should say that i'm not palestinian myself so perhaps it could be better described as a pro palestinian perspective um and perhaps it might be of interest to your um listeners uh, i am muslim uh, i'm born and raised in the us in pennsylvania i'm originally egyptian though my parents immigrated from egypt in the 1970s so i guess i am what you would call an arab american or a muslim american and those two identities are important to me uh in the sense and i think it's a great thing about the us is that it is possible to be both unapologetically proud to be american and sort of patriotic or even nationalist in in that sense while also being proud to be muslim and and those dual identities are are um are important to me when it comes to the palestinian perspective i think one thing worth emphasizing from the outset is that it's possible to be anti hamas and pro palestinian it's also possible to be pro hamas and pro palestinian um this is just to say that there are diverse perspectives in palestine itself in the west bank in gaza in the palestinian diaspora that there are millions of Palestinians who live outside the Palestinian territories including in Lebanon, Jordan, in Europe, in the US. So it's we should be careful to not talk about Palestinians as having one perspective. My my approach is to say yes, Hamas is a US designated terrorist organization that they do indiscriminately target civilians and we know that because the rocket attacks are not very discriminate um they are um they are imprecise and imprecise by design that's part of what makes them um terrifying for the israeli population because you don't know where it's going to go or where it's going to land and that creates a sense of fear and paranoia about the rocket attacks So in that sense we do know that Hamas commits war crimes and not just based on you know right-wing sources or pro-Israel sources but even um Human Rights Watch which is criticized for being um anti-Israel sometimes has said that yes Hamas does commit war crimes in that regard. So what I try to emphasize there is that Hamas's badness doesn't justify 
the brutality of the Israeli occupation, that it should be possible to hold two positions simultaneously to say, yes, what Hamas is doing is is immoral, unacceptable, terrorist, extremist, all the bad things that we want to say about Hamas. Um, but that shouldn't give Israel a carte blanche to, to just do whatever it wants to Gaza and to punish the Gazan population more broadly in this context of collective punishment. Um, that um, some, some Gazans support Hamas, but many Gazans don't. And in fact, Hamas's popularity has diminished in recent years. So there are many Gazans who are fed up and they shouldn't have to suffer in terms of their lives and livelihoods because the Israeli government wants to punish Hamas and, and destroy and to just make them feel pain. And this is where I think that the disproportionality, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is relevant, that, yes, Israel has a right to defend itself, but the question is how how it defends itself and what the specifics of that are. And that's where I think it's reasonable to criticize the Israeli government, just as we would criticize any other government. Israel isn't special in this regard. When my own government, the American government, uses drone strikes and kills innocent civilians in Afghanistan or Iraq, I would like my fellow Americans to speak out strongly and say that just because it's fine to target terrorists, but if you know that the terrorist in question is around a lot of civilians, there are major moral concerns there. Um, and if an Afghan wedding is targeted, as it has happened during the war in Afghanistan, there's been a number of, number of controversial incidents. Um, I, was, I was outraged about that, and I want to also extend my outrage in a consistent way when Israel does that or when Saudi Arabia does that in Yemen. So I, I do. So I think it is important to say we are not trying to um, target Israel and single and um, and single it out in a disproportionate way because obviously that that could be concerning because you don't want to you don't want to because it is the only Jewish state in the world. I think there is an understandable concern that if you seem extremely critical about Israel and you're not necessarily being as critical about other situations, then it does raise this question. And I understand that concern, which is why I think the standards have to, to the extent that we can, you know, we try to apply them, apply them consistently. So, so this is good that you've, uh, you know, you've kind of dissected two parts of it. One is the, the Hamas perspective. And I really don't want to focus on the Hamas perspective because that's the easiest one. Yeah. Everybody knows what Hamas standing for. Well, it's very clear. They want the annihilation of the Jewish state. And, and Hamas might as well, uh, you know, it directly talks about it in, in its charter or constitution, whatever you want to call it. I don't want to use that because a lot of times what happens is that is used as a straw man to kind of extend it to everything else. Now, I will give the, the... I'll try to present the Israeli questions as much as I can, but here's what I'm going to be doing. First up, it's very important for, for maybe us to discuss what are those non-Hamas Palestinian grievances that are against the state of Israel? Because I don't think so. 
a lot of people hear that side of the argument a lot. I think everything, it's very easy, especially in the, you know, the day or day and age of social media is you pick the extreme ideologue on side A, you pick the extreme ideologue on side B, you post that, that gets the highest amount of clicks and footage because that's just how negativity bias works. Yeah. And then everything else, which is basically maybe 60 to 70% of the people, they get ignored. So let us focus now on that non-Hamas perspective. So what are their specific complaints against the state of Israel? Okay, so let's even take this most recent uh, Gaza war, um, because I think there is an interesting conversation to be had about the sources of this conflict, where I think that oftentimes pro-Israel commentators will focus on Hamas's launching of rockets as if that's that's the only relevant fact and that that's how it started. Um the broader context, I think, is important. And I think my approach, whenever I want to try to understand why extremist groups or terrorist groups do what they do, we have to understand the quote unquote root causes. And that's sometimes controversial because it can sound like you're justifying it. Right. But I think the important thing here is to understand. So that way we can prevent future iterations of extremism and terrorism from happening. And if we don't address the origins of the conflict, then we're doomed to repeat things over and over again. So in this case, an important contextual factor is the building tensions in East Jerusalem. So the problem is no one really pays much attention to Israel-Palestine unless there's violence happening. Um, so people weren't paying attention to what was happening in prior months. But basically, there was the threatened eviction of Palestinian families from a particular neighborhood in East Jerusalem, the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. And there was a nonviolent campaign that Palestinians were waging to draw attention to these forced evictions. And they would hold protests on a weekly basis for months. And, but the protests were getting bigger because the Supreme Court case that would decide what happened to these families was coming up. And that's sort of where things started to reach um, a boiling point. But I think it's really worth noting that no one in the international community was caring or paying attention or writing op-eds when Palestinians were being nonviolent. They were having peaceful protests to draw attention to this particular issue. And then what happened is that um, because it was the, the final days of Ramadan, the holy, the holy month in Islam, that some of these protests were happening in the Al-Aqsa compound, which is basically um, the, th you know, the third holiest site in Islam. And, um, and there was a heavy-handed police raid in the Al-Aqsa Mosque area, and more than 300 Palestinians were injured, and they were using um, stun grenades, uh, rubber bullets, so on and so forth. So it was a very aggressive response in a very sensitive site for Muslims. And this is when things started to get really out of hand. And that's when I think you sort of, people had a sense of foreboding that all bets are off. This could really escalate. 
And that's precisely what happened when you, when you do something as aggressive as, as, um, using, uh, using rubber bullets and, and other violent and and other violent means, uh, for the Israeli police in such, in such a site, then, you know, things have, you know, bad things are likely to happen. And that's where it just got out of control. And we know that Hamas is self-interested. We know that they like to use these moments of tension for their own benefit. So they saw what was happening in East Jerusalem, and they knew that their popularity had been going down. They knew that they were becoming more irrelevant and they were also angry that elections weren't being held, which is a longer story. But basically, um, uh, Palestinians have been talking about having new elections literally for the last 10 years, but they keep on getting postponed. So, um, and you could say that if there were actually elections, then Hamas wouldn't have risked um, starting a new conflict because it would have been, it would have been focused on trying to win the upcoming elections. But none of that was going on. So Hamas's back was to the wall, and they knew that they could use this to their advantage. And unfortunately, they know also that when Israel, if they can provoke Israel to have a very heavy-handed response in Gaza, targeting, um, targeting Palestinian civilians, and you have children dying and a higher death count, of course, we know there's a propaganda gain there that Hamas can say, look at what Israel is doing. Look at the children who are dying. That benefits Hamas. So Hamas is acting not as a bunch of crazy extremist lunatics. They have a particular rational actor calculation. So you can be bad as Hamas is, as we've already talked about, but also rational. And I would also make this argument with other extremist groups. Extremist groups, um, one way that they're effective is that they know how to benefit from the asymmetry of warfare with stronger powers. We know that this is what they do. So anyway, this is just all to say that this was the built, this was the broader context in which Hamas, they thought to themselves, oh, we are going to make we are, we are going to make ourselves the um, the soldiers of Jerusalem, or we're going to show that we're the ones who were defending Al Aqsa Mosque and the honor of the mosque by launching these rockets into Israel. Then we know what the rest is history. We know how the rest of the conflict evolved from that point on. So, in in other words, if we want to prevent a future Gaza war or future Gaza conflict. We can't just look at Gaza. We also have to look at East Jerusalem and what Israel has been doing there. And the broader, broader context is that there's a demographic war that's happening in, in East Jerusalem where the Israeli authorities are trying to change the demographic balance to push more Palestinian families out. And who would take their place? Israeli settlers, usually they're far-right settlers. And that affects a very sensitive issue, which is the demographic um, uh, makeup of Jerusalem. And this has been one of the long-term um, criticisms of most Palestinians, which is that Israel is trying to um, is trying to change the nature of Jerusalem, which will make it harder 
for Palestinians to have their future capital in East Jerusalem. And, and that's always been one of the presumed outcomes of a two-state solution, is that you would have a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, but then they would need to have a capital. And East Jerusalem has been one of the fundamental demands of the Palestinian side. And not we're not even talking about Hamas. We're talking about uh, the, the, main, the main faction that is in power in the Palestinian Authority, which is the Fatah faction, that is controlled by Mahmoud Abbas, who is the Palestinian president. Um, so that, and then the other thing I'll just say more broadly, which we can unpack a little bit more, the biggest long-term grievance that Palestinians have is to put it quite bluntly, the occupation. So if we really want to get down to the fundamental issue that if you talk to 95% of Palestinians, if not more, from any faction, from any ideological orientation, most of them are unified on this particular point, which is they have been living under a repressive occupation that denies them freedom of movement, freedom of expression, the ability to determine their own lives, the ability to control their own destinies, um, and that they don't have enough, they don't have autonomy. There's autonomy in some parts of the West Bank, but there are other parts um, where there, there isn't this basic independence and freedom. And we know this because there isn't a Palestinian state. So the Israeli security forces do have considerable jurisdiction over parts of the West Bank, which means that Palestinians have to live basically under constant surveillance and a perpetual per, the perpetual control of another foreign power. Um, and um, and I, I don't believe that we can really um, address, we can, we can have a long-term solution to this conflict until you address the fact that um, Palestinians um, in the West Bank in Gaza don't have basic rights and they're still subject to the sovereignty of another power, in this case, the Israeli state. And this occupation has been going on since 1967, which is a long time, and which gives, which, which leads to a situation where Palestinians lose hope because they say, well, okay, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but it turns out that this might be going on for the foreseeable future. As you know, that people are giving up on even the possibility of a two-state solution so what we have to contend with now is the prospect that Palestinians will not have self-determination. They will not have their own state for decades to come. And we might have one of the longest running occupations really in recent centuries. So I don't know how to put it without, because I don't intend to be condescending or mean when I ask this question, but I have to ask this question. So if, if somebody was to ask you this question, if the, if the Palestinians want to have those basic freedoms and those basic rights, don't you think their probabilities, and I'm, I'm asking this with genuine curiosity here, would, would be maybe with an Israeli state, which is more democratic in comparison to, let's say, what they have right now. I mean, I'll give you an example that a, a good percentage of the members of the Israeli uh, state right now are, you know, people uh, who are Muslims and, you know, they have you know, prominent roles in different facets of Israeli society. So let's say if we were talking about all those values, uh, 
wouldn't that be more probable if they were part of a, i'm not saying uh, that the two state solution is not a solution but i'm just asking wouldn't that be more logical then it's a great question because there are actually a growing number of especially young palestinians who say precisely that that if there's no hope in a two state solution then let's talk about a one state solution or what's sometimes called a binational state So look I I'm open to talking about that idea but I don't think it's very realistic because it would mean that millions of Palestinians who live in the West Bank and Gaza would have to be given citizenship in Israel and they would have the right to vote in Israeli elections and it's understandable if you're a Jewish person in Israel you might not want that because then you might become a minority in your own state because if you're bringing in millions of new people and saying hey let's all be one big state and combine them together then that means that it's going to be about 50-50 and it might even become at some future point 60-40 and if the whole point of the zionist of the zionist idea is that jews have a right of self-determination to have their own state that has a jewish character then obviously they won't want to share power with arabs and muslims um um if they did that's look that's an interesting thing to discuss but i just don't see enough support in israel among the majority jewish population so right now um israel proper is about 80% jewish um uh, and then 20% arab the vast majority of whom are muslim and those are israeli citizens and you're right that they do have more rights than they do in most Arab countries and the neighboring yeah. countries but I would just say on that point that doesn't mean that they have that they have full equality and I think that what the criticism that I would have is um in many ways Arabs who are Israeli citizens um are second class citizens in a number of ways their systematic discrimination in terms of land access water in terms of access to various government resources the fact that the state is explicitly jewish means that they don't feel like they are fully accepted because the national anthem is explicitly um about jewish self determination um a big part of is of israeli society is serving in the army and obviously um arabs are exempted from that because for for obvious reasons and perhaps maybe those that they it would be hard for them to serve in an army that is suppressing their own palestinian brethren across the border understandably but that means they can't take full part in society and there is a, there is ba- there are basic jewish privileges that non-jews don't have the right of return is one example if you are a jewish if you're a jewish person who lives in the us or in britain you have the right of return to become an israeli citizen even if you've never set foot in israel in your entire life by virtue of the fact that you are jewish um where on the other hand if you're palestinian and you live in the diaspora and you've actually been on the land and your parents were maybe pushed out in the 1948 war so you have actually a, a direct claim on the land 
you do not have the right of return because you are not Jewish. So these are a number of ways where there's systematic discrimination. So I think that Israel deserves credit for being a democracy, but we also have to hold Israel to its own standards and not just say that, oh, they're better than Saudi Arabia or they're better than Egypt or these other, which I know I'm, I've always been extremely critical of most Arab countries because they're authoritarian, they're, they're disasters in any number of ways. And Israel is better than them on a number of these metrics. But we should hold Israel to the standard of democracies and democracies, we should hope, should try to treat their minorities um, in a better way and to move towards full equality. We know they'll never get to full equality because no country is perfect. But that's the kind of standard that we're talking about, I think, that's important. No, I, I hear what you're saying. In fact, uh, I think same is the case many times uh, I can see many parallels uh, with India and Pakistan. And, and a lot of times you have uh, criticisms from the Indian left about the way India deals because India has a significant Muslim population too. So I actually understand where you're coming yeah. from perfectly. Uh, and the criticism always has been that we are a democracy. Pakistan is an Islamic state and uh, you cannot have the same standards. But, but then the point is where the problem starts, Shadi, is that... Um, but when... There is, I'm not saying you're doing it, so please don't get me wrong. Yeah, sure, one sure, of the big, worry, yeah. yeah, one of the biggest reasons I've invited you is because you don't do it. But then there is this tendency in the overall discussion where there is a moral equivalence. There is an attempt to draw a moral equivalence. At least I've seen this in the India-Pakistan discourse. You know, every time somebody tries to say that, oh, you should learn from Pakistan. I'm not saying you cannot learn anything from Pakistan. There are many things you can learn from Pakistan. Maybe India could learn a better butter chicken from Pakistan. I'm always up to uh, up to <laughs> up to uh, learning from anyone. I mean, I'm I'm someone who has shared ethnicity with Pakistan. My my uh, my ancestors, a significant chunk of them, were from the Pakistani side of Punjab. But the point is that. There, uh, if you ask me, there is no moral equivalence between India and Pakistan. India, even on an objective standard, and I'm not a moral subjectivist, I'm actually a moral objectivist. And, and I believe if I drew a moral objectivist case, similarly in the case of Israel and Palestine, or Israel and the extended Arab world, I would say Israel is still morally superior in many, many possible measurable standards than the other side. But then how do you deal with this? And you can very well tell me, Kushal, this is a straw man. So I don't think so. You're being fair. But I, it's my duty to ask you this question because whenever this discussion happens, a lot of times these things are, you know, kind of put, put across as if there is some equivalence at a moral level between Israel and the others. So can, can there be a discussion? Yes, we get, like how you put it. Okay, I get they are a democracy. That's why we hold them to higher standards. But do you think you're the only one doing it? And there is a larger set in the narrative that actually has stopped doing it? Yeah, so so this is one reason why I'm against uh, what, what's called BDS or the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement against Israel. Um, and I've been criticized for that as being too soft in, on Israel because I don't support a boycott of, of, of an entire country. But the reason that I don't is the simple is quite simple. I don't think that you should punish an entire society for the actions of its government. And even if the majority support government policies, there's always going to be a large minority in the opposition that says we have nothing to do with it. And if someone is born and raised in Israel and that's the only home they know, 
we shouldn't punish them for their national identity and say they can't take part in academic conferences or they can't travel to certain countries because they have an Israeli passport. We wouldn't do that for other countries. Um, so, for example, Egypt, the Egyptian government is is much worse than the Israeli government. Um, Saudi Arabia is much more repressive towards its own people. But we don't see I don't see many people calling for an entire boycott of uh, of Egypt, for example. So that's why I feel like consistency is important. I mean, on your question of so is Israel morally better than various Arab countries that who that are authoritarian? Yes. Um, but that's talking about Israel's internal democracy. I think this is the other issue, which is a little bit separate, which is the occupation, which is not actually something Israel is doing to its own citizens. Otherwise, it wouldn't be an occupation. The issue here is that Israel is denying self-determination to people who aren't Israeli citizens, who are in the West Bank and Gaza. And Gaza um, is one of the most, you know, one of the most miserable places in the Middle East because, you know, it is a bit of a cliche, but I think it's a cliche for a reason because it's largely true. Gaza is an open air prison. There's a blockade. So there's there's a whole debate about whether Gaza is technically under occupation. We don't have to get into that because Israel is Israel did withdraw from Gaza in the 2000s, but there is a blockade, which basically means that Israel restricts the good the goods and services that go into Gaza and come out of Gaza. And this can have profound impact where if you're a Gazan who has an emergency life-threatening disease and you and you want to go across the border, um, either to the West Bank or to Egypt or to travel to Europe or whatever, um, or to even just normally just get out of get out of this very small Gaza Strip, Israel, Israel, and and also to some extent Egypt, um, and they cooperate on this. Um, there, Israel restricts who, um, who's able to leave for different reasons, and also um, what kind of medical services are able to come in, so on and so forth. And there's been a lot of documentation from human rights groups about how this makes it extremely difficult to survive and to live um, in Gaza. So that blockade has to be addressed. And I would argue that Israel has a responsibility to ease the conditions of that blockade. And that's what we should be calling on for right now. When it comes to the West Bank, the West Bank is still under occupation to various different degrees. And um, we all know the stories about the checkpoints and choke points when you're traveling from one part of the West Bank to another, and they might just be 20 minutes away from each other, but it takes you three hours to get there, even though it's your own, even though it's your own area, it's your own land. Um, and uh, that has nothing to do with how democratic Israel is, because the West Bank is is not under Israeli democracy, as we mentioned. If it was, then um, Arabs would have the right to vote for Israeli politicians, so on and so forth. So I think that that's where we. So that's where I like to separate the conversations. We have the conversation on on Israel's own um, political society, 
which there's a lot to be admirable about. And the last time I was in Israel um, was in 2019, you know, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Haifa. Um, and also I met with some settlers uh, and, and tried to have dialogues with them, which was very interesting. So I tried to get a sense of the different aspects of Israeli society. It's a very vibrant society and, and you have religious divisions, ethnic divisions, and people are debating these ideas passionately. Um, and it's almost a cliche to say that everyone disagrees with each other in, uh, in Israel, which I think is a great thing in any democracy where you don't have one position or one consensus. So that's all something that Israelis should be proud of in terms of what they've been able to build. But that is not the same thing as talking about how they treat Palestinians across the Green Line in the West Bank in particular and the blockade in Gaza. So I think that's where we can, if we want to be as nuanced as possible, we have two levels of the conversation that we can distinguish sure. between. Sure. You know, one complaint I've always had uh, from the Israeli side, and I think I don't, I never get a good answer from there is, and I don't know why this is not discussed enough. So when I was preparing for this podcast and I was trying to, you know, read up a bit, uh, I don't know, it was quite obvious for me to look up at economic statistics in Palestine and unemployment rates in Palestine. I, I thought that was a no-brainer. But then when I was looking at podcasts, nobody barely even talks about it. And I was like, how the hell can this important factor... Uh, not be spoken about. So I was just looking at, uh, I don't know how authentic this website was, but there were multiple websites that were giving the same figure. So I was just looking at tradingeconomics.com and you know they had a very detailed chart of uh, unemployment rates of Palestine from 1995 for say, from uh, to, right up to 2021. And the figure consistently hovers around you know 25% and above. And, and I got the shock of my life. I was like, oh, damn. That high in unemployment rate, uh, if you have so many unemployed people, and then I was looking at the average age of that population, which is pretty reasonable, I was like, you have a recipe for disaster. Now, my question to you in such a case is, whose responsibility is to fix such a gigantic problem where you have hordes of Palestinians who are unemployed, you have unemployed people living in a conflict zone where obviously uh, even if you don't want to admit to whose side is right and wrong, just looking at the bare numbers, uh, somebody has to get up and say, Houston, we have a problem. And it is a recipe for disaster. But Shadi, why do you think this is never spoken about and there are there is no specific you know, focus on maybe if we got them a ton of jobs, this could actually be solved. It's a great question, and you're right. The numbers are pretty shocking, and it's even worse in Gaza. Sometimes I've heard numbers as high as um, you know, 60% unemployment in Gaza, which is different. In the West Bank, 25% um, is still quite a lot, as, as you note. Um, I think that part of the issue here is if you focus too much on the economic side, sometimes there's a temptation to say, well, let's invest in the West Bank. Let's um, let's focus on the economic side, and then that might make you forget the politics of it. And I, 
economics matters, of course, and you want to improve people's standard of living. But ultimately, the, the foundational issue is deeper. And I think that even if you improve people's lives in the West Bank, if you don't address the question of basic dignity and self-determination, you're still going to have unrest. Because what we know about human beings is that they have deeper desires that go beyond the material. They want to feel like they have their own society that they have control over. And it's worth noting that the West Bank, the parts of which uh, that are governed by the Palestinian Authority and President Mahmoud Abbas, he's a bit of a despot. He, um, it's a so we have to blame also uh, the, not just Hamas but also the Palestinian moderate leadership um, in the West Bank and say they've been avoiding elections for a while. Um, and I, I should also say, I mean, one of to be fair, Israel hasn't Israel um, has been making it hard for Palestinians to run their own elections um, because um, for a number of different reasons, uh, one of them is should Palestinians have the right to vote in East Jerusalem? So there's some jurisdictional issues, but also um, if Hamas potentially does better in one of these in one of these elections israel might not want that outcome either so israel is a partner in sort of keeping in place this very corrupt old leadership and it also helps them because they can say look how weak abbas is we can't do business with him we don't have a partner he he can't even run his own run his own situation then they say well hamas is in gaza they're not a partner either and it's worth noting, Israel hasn't tried to get rid of Hamas. Uh, and I mean, one of the reasons is they worry that the alternative would be worse. But Israel is actually okay to have this perpetual situation where Hamas is bad in Gaza. Um, Mahmoud Abbas is weak in the West Bank. And that allows them to sort of not take responsibility and say, well, look, they're a mess. Uh, let them get their act together and we can talk to them. But they're obviously part of the problem because they aren't they aren't actually giving incentives for moderate leadership. They aren't strengthening or trying to find ways to work with Mahmoud Abbas and to address corruption and the lack of elections um, in the West Bank. So I think that on one hand, the economic side is important. Um, but can you really have true economic success if there isn't political autonomy and political independence? If you have a very corrupt leadership um, in the West Bank, can they ever really be counted on to run economic policy in an effective way? A lot of them are you know, putting money in their own pockets. I mean, the stories of the Palestinian Authority's corruption are, are legion. Starting with you, a lot of a lot of your listeners might remember the stories about Yasser Arafat in the uh -huh. '90s and early 2000s, and his wife Soha taking trips to Paris and God knows doing what else. So um, this that has to be addressed if you want to get the economics in order as well. Yeah, but think about it, Shadi. So the average age of Palestine is 20.8. I think around that figure, the average age of Israel is 30.8. Now, 
you add such a young population with a high unemployment rate and then now somebody might say oh, there you go kushal you godless person bringing religion <laughs> into it but i have to and then you add religion to the mix and uh, i don't know shadi how to put it but whether it's israel palestine or whether it's india pakistan people don't want to admit to it but you know i always say this you know you can ignore gravity gravity will not ignore you gravity will be there and i mean you can say it doesn't exist but it's it won't cease to exist yeah. these are religious issues you have such a dangerous combination where a young population unemployed and there you go you know in in india we have this uh, fear you know everybody is like oh islam is in danger or hinduism is is in danger and the same applies over there uh, judaism is in you know in danger your jewish identity is in danger your islamic identity is in danger and then you have all these unemployed people and religion it is very fast the meme the virus takes over your mind very fast so don't you think the palestinian side also has some sort of a responsibility then yes um, okay so on the it's on the question of religion and religious extremism let's say um so you have these you have these angry unemployed underemployed palestinians they've given up hope in a two state solution it's worth noting that there was a time when a plurality of palestinians if not a majority supported a, a two state solution that's when there was more hope about the oslo process and it seemed like that it was going in the right direction but after you have these expectations for such a long time and the two states never actually happened like we you know like we talked about people people start to look at alternatives and if if nonviolent campaigns are repressed and it it's worth noting that israel has generally arrested or otherwise suppressed nonviolent leaders of palestinian movements because they don't want a gandhi figure to emerge because that's going to be very compelling in terms of like in the, you know international perceptions and israel has a benefit in saying look at those crazy extremist palestinians who are represented by hamas so those nonviolent voices oftentimes don't actually uh get much attention so um look palestinians have agency and um palestinians have made mistakes certainly their leadership has made mistakes time and time again and as i mentioned mahmoud abbas has been a very underwhelming leader and he's really hurt his own people and yasser arafat too is a good example of bad leadership but i think that you know if so in that kind of context more palestinians are going to look at hamas as an alternative because they say look abbas has been corrupt the two state negotiations never went anywhere no one pays attention to nonviolent campaigns this doesn't justify an an individual going to hamas but again if we want to understand why there are some young palestinians who look to hamas and say that is the better way it's because the other options aren't very compelling they're choosing between available options and we know this about extremism we know that if there if there isn't hope in more constructive ways of approaching something 
they're going to look at the religious language that is um, that is arousing the passions that talks about history and dignity and the religious and that Islam is the only way and that Hamas speaks for Islam. I don't believe Hamas speaks for Islam as a Muslim, but that's the kind of language that they're using. And some people buy into that. So we have to find ways to give Palestinians alternatives. And that's why I worry now that the, this Gaza war, now that it's done, people are moving on to other issues. They're going to forget about Palestine just like they forgot about it after the 2014 Gaza war, and then we'll wait, and it'll be the same cycle. Nothing actually moves. Nothing gets better for Palestinians, in part because no one in the international community is paying attention. So I would just say that, you know, for all of us who care about these issues and want to actually see a better alternative, the U.S., the international community, if that even exists, you know, we can even question this idea that there is an international community. But let's not forget about the Palestinians. And um, you can be pro-Israel and still have sympathy for what Palestinians have to go through. And this is something that I think is really important. You can think Israel is morally preferable or superior or all of this. Um, that that doesn't mean not viewing Palestinians as human beings who are deserving of our understanding and sympathy for the daily struggle that they have to go through. Um, and they shouldn't have to pay the price for their own bad leadership. Um, and, um, and I think it's worth, it's worth noting, and this is, again, it goes back to the question of incentive structures. Palestinians only got on the top of the international agenda because of violence. That's terrible. That's a terrible incentive structure to give them. It was only when Hamas started lobbing rockets that people remembered that Palestine was a thing. So what kind of message does that send to people when, and this is why they might look to Hamas, and this is why Hamas is gaining popularity, because Palestinians who had given up hope, they said, well, look, we don't love Hamas They've been messing things up in Gaza, but for the first time in years, the international community is paying attention to us. This is, this is, I, I wish it wasn't this way where violence is what gets Palestinians on the news. If it bleeds, it leads. That's, you know, we hear this, that that's what people pay attention to. So if we want to undermine Hamas and if we don't want Hamas to get more popular, we have to pay attention to Palestinians when they are focusing on nonviolence, when they are not lobbing rockets. So let's not forget them now that the rockets have stopped. Yeah, I would agree with you. Shadi, before I, I let you go, I have to discuss your book, Islamic Exceptionalism, oh, sure. because I never I never got to discuss this when you were in Delhi. And now uh, after that, uh, as they say, shit has hit the roof and we've all been kind of stuck without traveling. So I always wanted to ask you this question about your book, Islamic Exceptionalism. First of all, I want to congratulate you. It was an absolutely wonderful book. I had oh, a great you. time re reading it. But I had a complaint about that book. And, and I always wanted to uh, you know, raise that complaint with you that, you know, the book, when I read it, it was very Arab-centric. Now, I'm not blaming you for it. But, but the point is that as a person who lives in India, 
who is surrounded by two you know majority islamic countries like bangladesh and pakistan i, I always felt that that when you draw the the painting of islamic exceptionalism uh, that it was somehow missing out on these three major countries and i and i want to speak uh, and i don't know if people maybe have a problem they might be kushal you're not a muslim why are you speaking on behalf of indian muslim i don't know my brain functions differently to me they are indians first and i can always speak on behalf of my people uh, indian people like i always felt that the islam in india is very unique uh, uh, islam in india uh, no maybe some muslims may not like what i'm saying maybe the hardliner but there is a significant amount of muslims in india who will agree with me too it has a huge confluence of hinduism and islam together and it has created a unique blend of islam in india where a lot of things that maybe in orthodox islam are considered shirk are not shirk in india you will see mm-hmm. uh, indian muslims uh, doing things which might be downright idolatry for maybe muslims in the arab world so so do you think maybe when we talk about islamic exceptionalism maybe that major region and their way of life was ignored yeah so the first thing i'll just say just just to give some context to what what exceptionalism means um so i'm talking specifically about islam's resistance to secularization mm-hmm. islam's outsized role in politics and public life that's what makes it fundamentally different because obviously all religions are different from each other in unique ways otherwise there would be no point in having different religions because if they were all the same then who cares you know so th- that's the particular aspect of exceptionalism that i'm referring to and for me this is neither bad nor good Islam playing a prominent role in public life it can obviously be bad and we see any number of examples of that in the world but it can also be good because i'm someone who believes that religion is important for social organization for social cohesion for giving individuals meaning belonging and structure and i would say the same about christianity and i've been a critic of the dechristianization of of the west and of america more recently because it's be careful what you wish for if christianity leaves something else might take the, might fill the vacuum and that other thing might not be better that's also why i say you know when it comes to um hindu nationalism or the rise of the bjp in india i'm critical of the bjp because of its anti-muslim policies but if we are small d democrats we have to respect democratic outcomes and if the bjp wins that's what we have to live with as a legitimate democratic outcome the same thing with donald trump i was i i thought i think donald trump was really bad for america but he was our legitimate president because democracy is is about the right to make the wrong choice you know so i think we have to apply the same idea to um to muslim majority societies that if islamist parties like the muslim brotherhood win in free and fair elections we might not like that but again that is what if that's what the democratic process produces then we have to respect that if we are in fact believers in the democratic idea and i think that authoritarian rule has been disastrous for the middle east and 
I do believe that the U.S. should do more to support democracy in Arab countries, even if it leads to Islamist parties doing well or even winning in elections. Um, okay, so that's that's part. That those are some ideas there. Um, the book focused primarily on Muslim majority countries. And the reason for that is, and that's why India, for example, didn't really figure in, into my analysis, is because the question of Sharia and, and Islamist parties winning is only going to be relevant if there's a Muslim majority. There's no real risk that in India, the Muslim minority will be able to impose Sharia on, on the country. Um, simply because they don't have the numbers. And it's also worth noting that Muslims are diverse. Um, even if they say they want Islam to play a prominent public role, that doesn't mean they want to impose Sharia. There's different ways of thinking about Islam's role in public life. Some people are more strict and conservative. Some people have more progressive, progressive interpretations of Islamic law. So I always emphasize to people that even if you take my premise that Islam is resistant to secularization, that doesn't mean there's only one ver monolithic version of Islam that is very conservative and hardline. And I think that your listeners will be familiar with the diversity and the richness of Islam in, in India where there are different expressions. I mean, uh, I, when I was in India, um, and I and I I went to um, you know different mosques because I was just curious to learn more about how Islam was expressed. There's obviously still a strong Sufi expression of yeah. Islam in India that is very influential. And um, so anyway, um, but I think India is a really important case for seeing if there can be um, maybe coexistence isn't the right word, but to see to see how Muslims and Hindus can find a way out of the current impasse. I mean, obviously tensions have been growing um, and, you know, there might be complaints that the Western media has exaggerated the badness of the BJP on certain things and hasn't always offered the full picture. But I think it's still fair to say that if you're a Muslim in India now, it is understandable if you feel a little bit fearful about your future, if you feel that, um, some parts of the BJP, let's say the more hardline factions within the BJP, you know, you may not be very excited about that as, as a Muslim living in India. So I think these are real things that Indians have to be able to talk about openly and frankly. Um, I did talk a little bit in my book about Malaysia and Indonesia. Mm -hmm. um, if we're looking at Asian cases, uh, Pakistan is interesting. Um I look, I have to say, as someone who has done, you know, I've lived in the Middle East. That's where I've done my field research, you know, for, in my academic work. I find Pakistan fascinating because it's an Islamic republic in, in quotation <laughs> marks. Um, and uh, I mentioned it briefly in the first chapter of the book, but I didn't really feel like um, I was the right person to spend a lot of time talking about a very unique case. Um, what Pakistan is, I would say, quite unique. But I think it is, it is interesting for my argument because Pakistan um, is at least relatively democratic. It's not a full democracy because the military still has 
a lot of control over certain defense and security issues. It does interfere in the civilian space, unfortunately. And one might even argue that under Prime Minister Imran Khan, the military has has played a, a larger role. Yeah. But at least it's more democratic than many of the countries in, in the Arab world. And it's interesting that even though um, Islamist parties don't do well in Pakistani elections, um, the most they've ever gotten um, is maybe 15, you know, 15 percent, um, you know, I think in, in the 2000s after 9-11, that was maybe their high point. Um, but Islamists still have a lot of influence as a kind of lobby group, and they can put pressure on the national government, on the educational system. Um and uh, and again, this reminds us that if there is democracy and you have a socially and religiously conservative population, a democratically elected government is going to have to reflect that. So because Pakistanis are generally religiously conservative, you're going to have a religiously conservative country. In Indonesia and Malaysia, we see something similar. Um, in India, because many, many... Um, Many, Indi many Indians want Hinduism to play a prominent role in public life. That's what's helped the BJP to gain more traction over, over recent decades. And um, that's what democracy does. In, in Hungary and Poland, people want Christian identity to be more in public life. That's why we see more Christian-influenced parties being in power. Um, so... Democracy, so in this sense, democracy doesn't necessarily lead to secularism, and not just in Muslim-majority countries, but increasingly in the rest of the world. We're seeing how democracy leads to new ideological movements or new right-wing populist parties. Bolsonaro um, in Brazil is another example who has some evangelical support, but he's not really like that Christian. He's just a right-wing populist who has a weird... Um, confluence of ideas. So I think this is the real challenge in a lot of democracies is how do you accommodate these new ideologies that I think are drawing on a sense that the old secular elites failed. The Congress party, people got fed up with the Congress party in India. They saw a corrupt dynastic family and they said, we want something new. So elites can't just say, look how bad the BJP is. Look, they're racist, anti-Muslim. They may be anti-Muslim in these different ways, but you can't just rely on that. You have to come up with your own affirmative message and say, we're not just business as usual as the Congress party. We have our, new, our own new ideas, and we can't just rely on saying that the other party is bad. Um, and I think that's where the old elites have really failed, because people are angry and they want to feel like someone is actually speaking to their anger and is actually saying something new and interesting. Yeah, I actually understand what you're saying. Another thing that stood out for me, I don't know if you're aware of that. So in that book, you used a very interesting term. You called it gradualism, if you remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, and the same word has been used by another Muslim, but in a completely different context. And that is Majid Nawaz. So Majid Bhai, in his book, talks about gradualism, but in the complete opposite context. So Majid Bhai's gradualism is, well, we're slowly going to take them towards secularism, the conservative Muslims. Hmm. And in your case, in your book, you talk about how the conservative Muslims are using gradualism as a strategy 
to slowly take the semi-democratic Islamic states towards Sharia law. So it's it's very interesting that both of you use the same concept to show two completely different realities. I don't know if you and I clearly remember this is one more thing I wanted to share with you because it's very interesting and uh, which you know eventually takes us down to that it's a battle of ideas and whether you like it or not some ideas are going to win at this point of time maybe they'll lose in another point of time so so if i at, this is my last question I'm, I'm aware of your time so where do you think the the islamic world is going through right now so which gradualism is winning as of now that's an interesting question um uh, look i think generally gradualism is always preferable to the alternative because gradualism means that you're participating in democratic institutions that you're avoiding revolution. I mean, I'm not a big fan of overnight revolutions, which can lead. Um, and we, for obvious reasons, whether it's the French revolution or yeah. the Iranian revolution, we know that the very aggressive revolutions um, are destabilizing. And because I believe in the best way to select your leaders is by asking the people to vote and revolutions don't always do that. They just say, Hey, here's a Vanguard and let's, they're now in power and you have to live with it. Um, so I gradualism can sometimes have a negative connotation because it makes it sound like people are sneaking around and they're not telling you their true ideas and they're kind of gaining power behind the scenes. And once they, once they're ready, they're going to pounce. Um, maybe that happens sometimes, but also, um, that's just politics because if you have ideological ideas, you can't just put them on people right away. You take steps. I think that would apply to, um, you know, the BJP took steps. It didn't become the BJP overnight. It had to develop a constituency and persuade people. It had to reassure elites that it could take care of, um, the business community, even though the business community was traditionally skeptical of, of Hindu nationalism in some ways, that's just normal politics. You, you address different audiences um, in different ways. And, you know, even I do that. I mean, I have my convictions, but if I'm talking to one audience, I'll, I'll maybe emphasize certain things. And with a, with a different audience, I'll try to focus on a different set of issues. It's just normal. That's how we talk. Um, so, um, which is kind of making me forget your original question, <laughs> but, um, I mean, that addresses the gradualism part. Um, but there was another part of what you had asked. Remind me. No, no. So I wanted you to tell us that which gradualism you think. Is oh yeah. Yeah. The modern Muslim world. Yeah. That's the other part. Yeah. So I think that there's a real, I think there's a real sense of hopelessness in, in the Middle East because different ideologies have been tried. Ma the mainstream Islamist movements that participate in politics, like the Muslim Brotherhood, they failed. They're being repressed now. A lot of them are, uh, you know, in hiding or in exile, especially the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood after the coup in 2013. Um, ISIS obviously was, was largely destroyed in Iraq and Syria. Um, secular, secular authoritarian regimes have become more and more repressive. So I think there's a real sense of people just like in exhaustion and they don't know what's next. Um, 
And um, I think that there are some signs of decline of um, of growing secularism, but in a, I would just say in a very minor way. So if you look at some of the polls, um, in some countries, the number of people who say that they're not religious has gone up from like 6% to 12%. And I remember when one of these polls came out, people said, whoa, secularism is winning out in the Middle East. But then I said, look at the numbers. Granted, it's in, it's increasing, but it's still, it's still at a very low, a very low number. And that's because these societies are so religiously conservative that they could only go down from this point. So for example, you know, we have some polling um, from Pew and Gallup and elsewhere that it's like 95% of Indonesians say that religion plays an important role in their daily life. If it goes down to 90%, you know, that's still pretty high, you know? So I think that um, the trend line is interesting and we have to keep an eye on that and see how that goes. But I think that we, we, should, we should be careful about projecting our own Western expectations on very different cultures. So we say, oh, we went through secularization in the West, so it's only a matter of time until Muslim-majority countries go through that as well. They're going to have a ref reformation, then an enlightenment, and they're going to realize what Christians realized. I, I just think, first of all, it's kind of patronizing to just expect Muslims to be like Christians. Um, it's just also not realistic. I don't see enough evidence that there's going to be a massive shift towards secularization um, in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, so that's that's where I'm critical of the, some of this secularization discourse. You know, Majid and I have had friendly debates about this, and, you know, he has a vision for what he wants um, the Muslim world to become. But I just don't know. I just don't know if, you know, obviously anything is possible in 100 years or 200 years and we'll all be dead then. But for the foreseeable future, I just don't think there's enough evidence to suggest that there's some Islamic enlightenment that is about to come. Yeah, I'd say that's a fair assessment. Yeah, I'd actually agree with you that uh, personally, if somebody asked me, I'd, I'd myself uh, be agnostic uh, to this question at least. But Shadi, uh, this was an absolute pleasure. Uh, when I started, uh, you know, to, you know, research for this podcast i had many questions and 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 i'm glad that you know you've come here because uh, i think many times people don't realize that when it comes to india even from a foreign policy perspective india has a very unique foreign policy perspective when it comes to the israel palestine issue which i don't agree with it personally but india's issue has been we're not going to be a referee in this match <laughs> We're mm -hmm. just going to be, we're just going to go and talk to both the sides and we're going to try to wiggle it up our way about. But, uh, and and uh, that is one of the reasons I felt that, you know, I have to get the Palestinian perspective in this discussion. So, so thanks a lot for coming on the podcast and, you know, sharing your views with us. Yeah, it was my pleasure, Kushal. Thanks for having me and I enjoyed the conversation with you. So um, look forward to staying in touch. All right. Thanks a lot. So, guys, time to wrap today's discussion up. I'm going to leave the the links to 
Shadi's books. So I'll leave the Amazon link in the description of the podcast, whether it's the video version or the audio version. I would insist you go and buy his books and read his books. Trust me, I had a great time reading Islamic Exceptionalism. Uh, also, so Shadi is an editor on another portal called Wisdom of Crowds, which is a very interesting yeah. portal. Uh, I will leave the link for Wisdom of Crowds too. You guys can go and check it out uh, there and you can follow him on Twitter. As always, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. You know the drill. You can become a member on YouTube, subscribe on Patreon, buy the merch on the website, or send donations via UPI. I try my best to have interesting conversations. Until another, the next time, namaste, take care, goodbye. 